Hey everyone, welcome to Techonomics this week. I'm Jake, an analyst, writer, and engineer currently working in fintech. And I'm Arun, an investor, educator, and product leader currently working in the autonomous space. And this week we have Ahmed Siddiqui joining us. He's the VP of product at Branch and the author of Anatomy of the Swipe. And this episode concludes season one for us. We will be back in 2022 with more conversations. We hope you enjoy. Ahmed, thanks for joining us. Jake, I'm super excited to be here. It's always fun to do these kind of things. So thanks again for having me. Totally. Uh, and so we usually have guests come on and explain their career path and how they got to where they are now. What does that path look like for you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Arun, for, for asking that. My path to where I am right now is kind of all over the place. I wrote a book on payments, but I would have to argue that I'm not like a seasoned payments veteran per se. I kind of stumbled into payments. And so where I am today at Branch, I, I lead product over at Branch. We are actually based out of Minneapolis, which is my hometown. And a lot of things always end up coming back to Minneapolis. But I, I started my career off, like I graduated from the University of Minnesota. I went into consulting for a really long time. So I did a lot of technology consulting with IBM. I am a total data nerd and I love great data architectures. And so I had a lot of experience there. I always had this itch to kind of do my own startup. And as I was in consulting, I realized that I was traveling Monday through Thursday, going from client site to client site. And I knew that I really wanted to do something in startups and I wasn't really getting anywhere by working and also trying to do my own thing, it being in Minneapolis. And so I actually, mm -hmm. in 2010, I moved out to the Bay Area to try something on my own. And I actually, at that time, the iPad was pretty new and mm -hmm. I wanted to build educational apps for kids. And so like English is actually my second language. And so I knew that I wanted to offer something for those people that are learning English, a, a cool game or something that they can play on the iPad and the iPhone. So I ended up building an educational apps business, did that for about, you know, two years, learned that uh, it's actually a really, really hard business to build out. And so as I was doing this, I was also learning about venture capital and like what it actually takes to raise money and that sort of thing. And so I wanted to be on the other side of the table. And so I actually joined early stage venture fund to learn mm -hmm about what, what it is to actually be an investor. So I was doing that for a little bit. And then my wife and I, we had our first kid in San Francisco and we were thinking, wouldn't it be great if we can be closer to at least my parents or her parents? So her parents are actually in Connecticut and mine are in Minneapolis. And mm. so we were thinking about moving back. And so had everything kind of packed up and everything. And then my really good high school friend, Dave Matter, messaged me on LinkedIn, not LinkedIn, sorry, Facebook, totally randomly. And again, it, it, as with high school, like you, know, you stay in touch with some people and most you don't. And so I'm not probably the best at staying in touch with people, unfortunately. But when Dave reached out, he's like, hey, like I'm here in the Bay Area. You're here as well. Mm -hmm. We should probably get together for coffee. I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I ended up meeting up with him for coffee. He was kind of telling me about Marketa, which he was the head of product at. And I didn't like fully get it when he was explaining it to me because I was like, yeah, I know of Stripe. And like, is it like Stripe? <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's like, no, it's the other side of Stripe. And we'll go into kind of what the differences are, et cetera. Because I think it's, I don't think a lot of people really understand this. But anyways, he, so I told him, I was like, look, man, I have a truck that's coming and I am moving to Minnesota <laughs> next week. And he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And so he essentially told me that I should join him at, at Marquetta. Actually, there was a really cool opportunity to a, work in Dubai. They were about to sign a deal in Dubai and I always had it in my like bucket list to work in a Middle Eastern country. And so I talked to my wife and I was like, honey, what do you think? Do you want the snow of Minnesota or do you want the sand? <laughs> and she's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, my friend Dave, he kind of gave me a job offer and he wants us to stay here in San Francisco for a little bit and then move up to Dubai. What do you think? And she's like, that sounds kind of cool. Let's do it. So I have a incredibly supportive wife. So she's, she's absolutely amazing. I don't think that I would have been able to get into this had it not been for her being so agreeable to, you know, making this leap. Um, mm. so yeah, so we, we kind of called the, the truck driver and told him don't come, had to get a temporary apartment in San Francisco just until we finalized the deal in Dubai. And yeah, I, I jumped into payments kind of on a whim there and had to learn everything from scratch because when I joined Marketo, we were 35 people and a lot of the, you know, sort of the early, uh, Marketans actually did not come from payments. And so mm -hmm. we're all kind of like learning the stuff together. Uh, and when we did that, we actually had to like go really, really deep and like talk with the card networks, Visa and MasterCard and Discover and like really try to figure out how the heck this stuff works. And four years later, when my wife and I were expecting our third kid, we were like, yeah, I think we, we, we need some help now. And we decided we need to move to Minneapolis and that's where I found the opportunity with Branch. And so that's where I am right now. Cool. And you, so you started at Marquetta. When it was very early, they've now sort of, they've IPO'd recently, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what are they now size-wise? Do you know? I think the employee size, they passed like 500 recently. Yeah. It's so amazing working at a company when it's small and seeing what it's like when it's large and like going back and just not knowing anyone. <laughs> it's, it, I always, I get a kick out of that. You, you were at a company at one stage and you knew everybody and you sent an email, you knew the person, you knew the person's face. And then you sort of go back and visit. Like, there's just all these people walking around that you just had no, you had no idea the company would ever get to this. You had no concept of it. And now you don't know anyone really. It's, it's always this like funny things with orgs. Yeah, it is. It is funny. Like, I feel like around the time that I left, we were probably like, I want to say like 180 or 200, maybe 200, maybe. And it felt very different because when we started off, we were, we had this small little office in Emeryville and you see, you saw everybody, you know, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to, that Jason is as friendly as he is. Like I've still got a mm -hmm. fantastic relationship with him. We, we talk all the time and like, but he's probably the only person I know there, like, Oh, two others. There's Melissa and Dan, but that's about it. But uh, yeah, it's, stuff has changed a lot. And it's it's interesting to kind of see that change. I, I see it from the outside. I'm actually a Marquetta customer now, so I get to see it from that side, which has been great. That's cool. And one one more thing just before I jump into the... You talked about how most of the Marquettans didn't know anything about payments and were kind of figuring it out. This is kind of a trend that I've sort of seen, even even across guests that we've 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 talked about. I think last time, Jake, this came up when we talked to Rahul. Yeah, it did. Yeah, because 
you know, I said Stripe, I mean, most of, most of the team that, that we have joined, of course, I'm hiring by the way. So if, if folks uh, hear that out there, but no, um, uh, shameless plug, but yeah, I mean, most of the folks that, that have joined, right. I mean, payments is a very, like, I would say nebulous industry and not everyone has the like granular knowledge you see in some like EMB experts or so on and so forth. And I think that's somewhat of a good thing, right? I think it does change the landscape a bit as people come in with fresh eyes. So, um, it's cool to hear you also say that, uh, you had that experience at Marketa. Yeah, the it's it's interesting because it brings very different perspective. There's just not a lot of people that have this experience. I think it's I, my hope with the book is that I can change that in that yeah. people start learning more about payments. They start to build an expertise, but it's a constantly changing landscape, which is number one. So even if you learn one single stack, like you're probably outdated. But I thought there was something really fascinating. I want to bring this up is that even at Square, it's very similar. And so I recently read this book called The Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey. Um, so if you guys haven't checked this book out, it's awesome. So Jim McKelvey is the other co-founder of Square. You don't hear about him much, but he's, he's, he's the other co-founder with Jack. And in the book, he talks a lot about how the early Square employees actually didn't have any sort of payments knowledge because also what happens is that a lot of times is that if you've got too much payments knowledge, you only think in a certain way. Oh, and yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. where, at, where at Square, I mean, they pushed the boundaries on so many things. Um, and so I, I actually, I think it's kind of good. Like it's people that are asking the right questions, the way in which you architect things is different when you don't come from a payments mm -hmm. background. I mean... A lot of the early engineers came from IGN at Marketa. And so it's like, we designed this as like a, like a kind of like a high, high availability gaming shop more than hmm. anything else. And actually it really paid off because it was designed that way. Um, yeah. Because that's what we knew. That's just how you design it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Anytime you're at a frontier, you, you can get some people who kind of know that frontier, but you could not build a big company off of people who have like frontier knowledge. I see it in self-driving all the, you can only, there are a handful of people who've had experience in self-driving. You could not build a two or 3000 person company just with like, sort of like with people who are self-driving, you're going to have to have some people who are learning on the fly, no matter what it is. And I always think that that's interesting in terms of like, how do you find people? How do you identify the people that are sort of like quick learners, quick studies, all of that? I don't know if there's actually an answer, but it's, I think it's like one of the questions that tech tech kind of has to answer as we start tackling more and more of these really, really frontier tasks. Yeah. But again, let's try to bring in as many like different perspectives as possible. Mm -hmm. I think it just makes things better. Yeah. And I think at least what I've learned is it's important to construct the team with the goal in mind, the skill sets and the goal you need in mind, as opposed to just biasing off past experience with that, actually, you know, there was no sort of like base of knowledge really for payments. As I recall, if I recall correctly, the only other book is, what is it? Payment systems in the U S the, the classic yeah, it's and the Bible. The classic. It yeah. is the Bible. Well, I guess it's the old Testament. Maybe this is the new Testament. The, we're going to get some emails about that. The, so explain, explain to us. So you, you, you had to learn payments. You, you famously sat down and you had a whiteboard session with someone and presumably read the, the previous book and then was sort of inspired to write this book. So what was the inspiration to write the book, The Anatomy of the Swipe? And what was the process of writing it like? Yeah. Uh, so again, I remember 
this was the first pay, payment systems in the U.S. was the first book that I was given um, at Marketa, and it was just kind of like again, since we're like flying so fast, it was like, boom, read this, you'll learn about payments, and I, I, I think it's a good primer, but also it's. It's a little hard to get, at least for me, I'm very visual. And so for me, like whiteboarding and, you know, drawing out pictures and stuff was very important. And so when I joined Branch, what, three years ago, we were actually not even in the payment space or fintech space at all. It was actually a scheduling app that was used by like employees of, let's say, Target or Subway or whatever to swap shifts and pick up additional shifts. And the, the idea there was you can view your schedule, but also if shifts are available, you can pick up more shifts so you can earn more money. And so I actually really thought this was very exciting because uh, I felt like kind of how Salesforce changed the game for CRM and they brought everything to the cloud is kind of the same thing. It's like bringing workforce management to the cloud and to mobile. And a few weeks in, we, we realized that the the, the the way that people got paid, even if they picked up more shifts, was they would get paid on the 15th and the 30th still. So sure, they're making more money, but the problem is they were getting paid on the 15th and the 30th. And a lot of times these people are living paycheck to paycheck. And so they get their money on the 15th, they spend all, and they don't have any money in their bank account until the 30th, right? And so we were trying, the, the real problem wasn't about how do I make more money? It was more about like, how do I get my money faster? And mm. if I need some money in between the 15th and the 30th or the 1st and the 15th, whatever it is, how do I do that? And that's really the pivot point for Branch in kind of converting from this workforce management type of business into fintech and payments because we wanted to just kind of figure this problem out. And nobody on the Branch team actually had any sort of payments or fintech experience or knowledge for that matter. So what I was doing is I was actually writing a lot of articles in Confluence of mm -hmm. like, how does money movement work? How does like card acquiring work? How does card issuing work? How does ACH work? Like all of these things of just how does payroll work, whatever. And I was putting that all in Confluence, reviewing with the engineering team, reviewing with the sales team, et cetera. And I got this opportunity to uh, compile it into a book because a friend of mine, Eric Coaster, who is a uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and he, uh, he, him and I knew each other when we were in San Francisco, and then he ended up uh, leaving to go to teach at Georgetown University. And so he actually teaches a class on how to write a book. And he, he messaged me what, yeah, it's been about almost a year and a half, two years, whatever. And he's like, hey, look, I'm about to take the content that I built out at Georgetown and put it online for professionals. Do you have anything that you'd want to write about? And I was like, mm. oh, I actually have a lot of content, but I don't know how to put it into a book, right? And so since I was doing all this writing, I was like, okay, look at the market and you see that there's not a ton of writing about this. But then again, also I was like, well, it's such a niche thing. Who's going to actually buy this book anyways, right? Maybe. And so I was like, let's just write it for branch. Like, let's try to explain payments to people who don't come from payments background and let's actually do it in a very visual way. And yeah, it took me, I want to say like nine months to like actually r write and do everything. I mean, it took it. 
I mean, the Confluence stuff was the easy part. Like I had to rewrite <laughs> it like eight times because my editor was like, she didn't come from uh, payments or anything. And she's like, mm -hmm. great, Ahmed, you put this stuff together in Confluence, but I still don't understand what the hell you're talking about. So I really had to like condense, 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 turn it into story form, and then kind of put it into this, this book. So a lot of, a lot of the book, even though it's, it's a nonfiction book, I tried to write it as a storybook. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. I, I loved reading it. I, I felt like the visuals were incredibly beneficial to accompany each one of the chapters as well. Um, and I, I love that the editor was a litmus test like, Hey, do, do I understand this? And then if the answer is no, then yeah, rewrite. I think that's the beauty of the book is that it helps us understand that. And actually with, with that, I, I'd love to move into the first part of that, which is you bring us through sort of the high level overview of, of what happens in the swipe, right? Would you mind running us through that, what that looked like while we don't have the visuals here, at least audio for, for the podcast listeners? Yeah, I would love to. Okay. So we're going to use a few examples. Jake, you have a card from your bank, right? Let's, we're going to go with debit cards for right now, just to make things simple. Credit cards work similar, but let's just keep it to debit cards. So you, you, where do you bank Jake? I bank at Chase. Okay. So great. So Chase, you have a Chase debit card associated with your Chase checking account. You might get your direct deposit into Chase, but the card, the debit card is most likely Visa, right? It's a Visa card yep, that's issued by Chase. So you have the instrument that is required to actually make a purchase. You're going to go to a coffee shop called Bucks of Star Coffee. And I, I'm not the most creative person, so you can think about <laughs> where that comes from. There's Bucks of Star Coffee and you want to go out and buy them. So the Bucks of Star Coffee is the merchant and with the merchant, they need some sort of machine that reads these cards, right? So they'll have a, a, a POS. So you could say like a, a square terminal, for example, right? So they, they might use um, square as their merchant acquirer. And that machine is what is able to accept the, the debit card that you have and it passes it through the network. So again, let's just look at the, who the players are really quick. So Jake, you're the buyer and you have a Chase card that's issued by your bank, which is Chase, and it's a Visa card. And then on the other side, you've got the merchant, which is Bucks of Star Coffee. Underneath Bucks of Star Coffee is that you actually have a merchant acquired that allows processing of payments. It could be a gateway as well. So like Stripe, if we're doing this transaction on the web, you are Stripe is the gateway that allows you to accept payments. And then in the middle, you've got Visa. So what happens in this story is that Jake, you're going out, you're buying a mocha for $4. And what you do is you will insert your Chase debit card into the card reader. And now that's where the magic starts happening, right? So, and, and for a lot of people, like, this is super mundane. Like we just do it. Like nobody really thinks know. about I'm it. <laughs> so, so here's what's going to happen. So you insert that card into the reader. The, the data actually goes over to Square and then Square will uh, determine that this is Jake's card. Um, it starts with a four, which means that it's a visa. And the first six digits actually signify the bin, which is the bank identification number, which will tell you that it's Chase. Okay. so. It takes this information and says, hey, $4 is the transaction. It sends this information over to its actually acquirer. I, I'm not exactly sure who their acquirer is. It might be Wells or Chase Payment Tech. 
But anyways, we'll send that information there. From there, it will get sent to Visa. Visa will then take a look and say, oh, okay, this is this particular six, first six digits, which actually means it's Chase. So I'm going to send it to Chase as issuer processor. Um, so whoever is the issuer processor for Chase, um, they might be doing this in-house or they might use something like FIS or Fiserv, Atesis, Marquette, Galileo, et cetera. These are issuer processors, right? So the data goes to the issuer processor. The issuer processor looks at it and says, yep, this card actually belongs to Chase Bank. And I do see Jake's info here. Jake has enough money in his bank account. He is allowed to spend at coffee shops. He doesn't have any sort of other restrictions. His card isn't blocked or anything like that. So I'm going to go ahead and approve this transaction. So the issuer processor approves the transaction. It goes back to Visa. Visa is like, okay, cool. Let me route this back. Visa routes it back to Square. And then the terminal lights up with a thumbs up that says, this is approved. And what is actually going on here is that it's actually a hold that's being placed on your account for the $4 because the movement of money actually happens. It doesn't happen in real time, but ultimately what needs to happen typically is the next business day is that money from your Chase account needs to move to the bank four bucks of Star Coffee. And that happens in batch. And so as you do your swipe, it's actually a hold of money. And then you'll see typically on your statement that it actually clears the following day and it becomes a true transaction. So you might see the words pending in your bank account uh, while this is happening. And then you can go ahead and add a tip and all that, and that's handled through clearing. So what's really crazy about this is like a lot of steps in this chain. All of this needs to happen in less than three seconds which I think is really kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, that's a lot of, you're moving a lot of hops basically in three seconds. <laughs> yeah. To and get, there's to get to an approved transaction essentially. Yeah. And there's SLAs or service level agreements across each one of those different players and ensuring that you have each one of those blocks in the chain being reliable is, is extremely important. Although I, I heard you say square, and I, I think you, what you meant to say is stripe terminal, but anyways, just, uh, <laughs> stripe just terminal. to make a stripe shape. Terminal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know, I, I work on stripe terminal. Uh, so no, that was, that was amazing. And so what, one thing that I, I want to dig into here as well is of course it's the payments industry, right? So we're moving money. We're also making money. So what does the fee structure look like and, and how do each one of these players interact with in terms of who gets paid, what based on their you know, either level of risk or their level of support to the network or what have you. Okay. And we will use Stripe terminal in this example. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. So, so the, the merchant, the merchant actually is paying for all of this, by the way. So why, why does a merchant pay for this? Well, the reality is people just don't carry around cash anymore. Merchants want to get paid fast and in a very efficient way, actually, and dealing with cash. Number one, I frankly think that's dirty and it's actually a lot of work to work with cash. So the technology that, you know, or the, or the rails that Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover have built, like effectively just allow people to spend spend at a lot more of these merchants. So it, essentially you're actually increasing sales by offering card-based payments to your customer base. And so that's why the merchant agrees to paying a fee for this. So the merchant is going to get assessed essentially three fees. Okay. With Stripe Terminal, you guys kind of bundle everything together. So it's kind of like 2.9 
two point was it two point nine percent and uh ten cents or something like that, right? I think online's a little bit cheaper. I think it's like two point seven plus five cents. Yeah. I'll I'll have to re-verify that, but yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. It's some some percentage. But basically what you're what you're doing in that scenario is you're bundling all the fees and giving it to the merchant so that the merchant, like it's easy for them to understand, right? But underneath that bundled fee is, so I, I can talk about kind of how people are paid out. So number one, there is a, it, it's referred to as the interchange fee. The interchange fee is actually the bulk of that fee. And what will happen there is it will go from the merchant to the card network. And then from the card network, the card network will push it directly to the issuing bank. So in this model that we were talking about, Chase Bank will actually receive the issuing, the, the interchange uh, fee. Then you have what's referred to as the network assessment. And the network assessment is a fee that goes to Visa or MasterCard, essentially. So that goes directly there. And then you've got an acquirer fee or gateway fee. And that is, in, in many cases, it's a flat fee or whatever it is, that is what goes to Stripe right? As the, as the gateway under the hood, I know that Stripe is paying another acquirer a portion of that as well. So there are two sort of models that people operate under. It's kind of the all-in pricing is the typical of how Square and, and Stripe model everything. It just makes it really clean and easy that, hey, for mm -hmm. any transaction, you're just going to be paying this. But you can also do kind of a I guess it's a pass-through model where the merchant is receiving these fees independently. And so then there's, there's actually a lot more variability there. So yeah, so that's actually how people get paid. So I mean, the network is getting paid by this transaction. The, the terminal or the, the gateway is getting paid. And then the issuing bank who issues the card is also getting paid for this. And so the, the other thing that sort of that I think about is if you're a merchant in today's world, what do you have to do to enable that swipe? So like, so we talked about like, you have to get a card from your bank if you're a consumer. Now, if I'm on the other side of the counter, I'm bucks of star. What did I have to do to enable the, like Jake to come in and pay me? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you need some machine that can read it, right? So uh, what you would do is you would go through kind of a merchant aggregator uh, or you'd go through an acquirer or you go through your bank. Like mm -hmm. if you, if uh, Bucks of Star is also with Chase, they can contact Chase and actually get a terminal directly through Chase and they'll kind of take care of all of that. Or you can go onto Stripe's website or you can go onto Square's website, order the, the hardware from there. If you're an online merchant, you don't even need the hardware. So it's a few lines of code <laughs> that you can put into your website, right? And that's pretty much it. I mean, I actually feel like nowadays it's so easy to get going and be able to accept card-based payments. It wasn't that way a few years ago. Cause I remember when I, at least when I was, when I graduated college, I actually had a little online auction site. And I remember just the hoops that I had to go through to like get a merchant account. All that stuff is gone. Like it's super. And so there's another thing that sort of jumps out to me here is that it seems like there's a lot of risk transference in, in, in this sort of like, in this process. And who kind of holds risk when? And then is it fair to say that a lot of like the financial rewards in the, in like, in that chain come from the fact that you're holding risk at a given time? 
Yeah. So, I mean, Arun, we could do a whole separate podcast on this, but just... we'd love to have you back. So, you know, <laughs> let's book it. Uh, let's book it. So just at a high level, the, the end consumer is protected anytime that a car transaction happens. Right. And that's mm-hmm. actually one of the, the main ways that the car networks have been able to get over the fear of people saying, oh, is it really secure for me to use this card and whatnot? So what happens is that let's just say that Jake actually got a hold of Arun's debit card somehow happens all the yeah. time oh that's okay all right so <laughs> yeah. so he he goes ahead and swipes it for this coffee and then arun sees on his statement this swipe from bucks of star coffee and arun's like i never did that um so then you just call up your bank and say hey i i didn't actually do this and they actually will file a, a chargeback claim for this now in in your scenario like if you knew that it was actually Jake and you already let him buy a coffee using your card, then what would, what would happen is that, you know, the bank would come back and ask, like, does anybody else have your card? Is it lent out to a spouse or a friend or whatever? Um, and so in that regard, you wouldn't be able to get that money back because technically you're liable for it. But what will happen is that if it truly was the case that you didn't authorize this transaction and Jake shouldn't have had your card, then it all goes back to the merchant first. And they they check things like, hey, was this actually done in a store or was it done online? Was the transaction keyed in versus like an EMV chip used? Because mm-hmm. if somebody, if it's a physical transaction and the chip is used, a lot of times the merchant is actually not going to get the liability for it. So then what happens is that the message goes back to the issuing bank and says that, hey, look, they, they actually were physically there using the EMV chip, which by the way, is like crazy secure. How do you, you, you need to figure it out. So at that point, the bank is actually liable. The user's bank is liable to figure out what to do with that. So then your bank could come back to you and say, well, maybe your card did get stolen, but we'll go ahead and refund you that money. And what we'll do is we'll get you a brand new card so that you shouldn't have this problem going forward. Mm -hmm. But there's like all these different rules around like, did they use, was it an online transaction? Is it offline transaction? Did you use the chip or not? Nowadays, you've got these other security measures like 3DS where mm-hmm. it's it's more popular in Europe. It's not as popular here, but it's going to happen. Did That's you use that mechanism? No, 3DS is really interesting in that if you're doing an online transaction, you type your card number into the web form, and then your bank will actually send you a text message asking you if this is you. So what it's actually doing mm. is it's pausing the transaction and then asking for like almost a 2FA on your yeah. transaction and then you you put in the code or whatever or you can go into your banking app and say yes i this is me and then it actually unpauses the transaction and lets it go through and so like if the merchant is offering that a functionality but your bank isn't offering it to you actually what happens is that the liability shifts and it goes mm-hmm. to the issuing bank i found this to be really interesting so i mean europe like it's very widely used in the us like there's a few uh, merchants that are already on it. Like I think Lowe's and Home Depot are actually one of the pioneers in this, but it's, it's going to happen. And so you're going to start to see functionality from your bank that asks for an additional approval before the swipe goes through, especially online. Yeah. There's also like a, 
in on, or uh, not an online, but an in-person version of 3DS as well. It's SCA, which is also like the Europeans tap and, or tap and chip, right? And then you have to enter your pin. Let's just say the transaction amount is above a certain level of, of amounts. Then it, oh, you tapped your card. Oh, well, can you insert so we can verify the, the chip? And then you have to enter your pin. It's, it's kind of like that in-person 2FA as well. Yeah. But also that it's kind of a bad experience though, too. I mean, I, I could go on, I can go <laughs> on is, about this too. Is, yeah. uh, what yeah, happens in I the case of a chargeback on like a tokenized payment, uh, like Apple pay or Samsung pay or things like that? I, I mean, tokenized payments are really, really secure. Like yeah. I, I'm not the expert on this, but mm -hmm. from my understanding, like it's, it's number one, it's really hard for you to add an Apple Pay card to your wallet, because uh, inherently, if it's if it's set up correctly by your bank, you once you add a card to your Apple wallet, it will always text you. Oh, so yeah. it texts the person on file and says, hey, um, you're if you're trying to add this, you're going to need to enter this PIN in to confirm being added. And so like Apple Pay and Google Pay transactions are inherently very secure because number one, it, they never show you the full PAN or the mm -hmm. card number on the digital card. And yep. when you transact with it, it's usually using some form of biometric as well. So it's like, okay, you're tapping and then it does a face ID or it does a touch ID mm -hmm. or something like that. And so it is like a really, really secure mechanism. And I'm, I'm a really, really huge fan of tokenized payments for that reason. Number one, they're super secure. But the other thing too is in many instances, you don't have to touch the POS. And so from a just COVID compliancy type of mm -hmm. thing. Like I love it. And so we've talked a lot about the, the payments side of, of this, and we, we haven't, we haven't really gone into the issuing side yet in, in terms of depth and detail. Would you mind jumping in there given the experience at Marketa? Yeah. Yeah. So Marketa is a modern issuer processor for cards, right? So issuing processing basically means number one, the issuing side means you are able to issue cards, be it a physical card or a virtual card or a tokenized card that's Apple Pay or Google Pay, you basically, that side of the market is the what's actually giving people cards to go out and use. The processing side of it is what we just described where the transaction needs to get approved by your issuing bank, right? And that's what that, the processing side primarily does is that it receives a message from the merchant through the network and it looks at a bunch of things like your balance. Are you allowed to spend at this MCC? Is it within your spend thresholds, whatever? And it actually sends a message back saying, yes, this transaction is approved. I think the, the classic sort of approval measures really are, do you have enough balance? Are you allowed to spend at this merchant? Are you allowed to spend this much money in a given day? Those are pretty like rudimentary controls that you know, just about every issuer processor offers. And I think the major innovation that Marketa got into is this uh, concept called just-in-time funding. And what Marketa mm -hmm. allows you to do is it enables you to pass the approval message, not the approval message, but the actual message from the network over to a third party. And that third party can actually run it through their engine and actually make a determination, should I approve this or not? And it's really powerful because there's so many other things that you can inject in here, things like geolocation, 
things like, is this person's phone with them as they're swiping the card? Are they within a given limit based on some other algorithm that you have? There's a lot of really complex things that you can do there. And the three second window that you have to make that response. When we when we built the system at Marketa, we, we were actually doing this way faster than the three seconds. So we had a lot of like time left over to actually pass it to another party to make a decision. And so that's how we were able to actually build this functionality out. And so it's really enabling third parties to be injected into the authorization stream. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I, I, I think there's a ton of use cases that would come out. Obviously I don't know all of them given I don't have a ton of experience there, but I'm curious, like, you know, in the book you call it uh, donut dash. And I think that there's some other use cases there that, that can be unlocked with, with really that like insertion of check at issuing side during the, during the approval. What has been your favorite so far in terms of use cases that you've seen? I mean, I think, I think the sort of donut dash experience is probably my favorite because using this level of control for neobanks, there are some nuanced use cases for it, but it's not as powerful. So let me, let me, if you don't mind, let me just run through what Donut Dash does. And so it's a delivery business in San Francisco that allows you, and this is fictitious, I totally made it up, but anyways, it's a donut delivery business in San Francisco. It goes out to, it has a number of drivers, they're 1099 drivers that go out to various different donut shops, picks up donuts and delivers it to you, Jake. And what the, one of the main problems that Donut Dash was having is that when the driver arrives to the donut shop to pick up for Arun or for Jake, they needed to pay with something, right? And the best way to pay for something is with a debit card. So Donut Dash initially was using just like gift cards or like preloaded prepaid cards to pay those things. And then the driver would essentially submit receipts or whatever to to pay for these things. But if their entire business is just donut delivery, that one driver might be doing like 30, 40 uh, drops in a given day, probably even more. And so like managing that became really challenging. And then on top of that, some of these drivers are not super honest. And so what they'll do is they'll pick up the order and they'll also tack on a bottle of water or a Coca-Cola. And all of a sudden, what should have been $5 or let's just say $15 become $16 mm-hmm. and the, the buyer only paid 15 for it. So, or actually probably paid more, but anyways, um, regardless, the margin gets completely messed up because it's not a high margin business. And so these $1 bottled waters are like actually costing a lot of money. So yeah. how do you, how do you control that? Well, sure. You can, you can go ahead and lock and unlock cards when driver is around, but if you really want to use geolocation and you want to be able to dial it down to the penny of how much can be spent, just-in-time funding is like perfect for that. So what, what happens in this scenario is that let's just say Arun is the driver for Donut Dash and Jake, you're the buyer. So you go in to the Donut Dash app, Jake, and you buy a dozen donuts. It comes out to $15 even, right? And that includes the 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 servicing fee tips whatever yeah. and then donut dash knows that the actual cost of that is $13 right so there's a margin of $2 when arun goes to swipe his card that's issued by donut dash at the the donut shop and he swipes for $13 what will happen is that that transaction data actually goes from the terminal at the donut shop to 
let's just say MasterCard to Marketa, Marketa passes it to Donut Dash. Donut Dash will actually check their database and see that, hey, for this order total, the cost should be exactly $13. And um, Arun is actually the, the driver at the time. So he should be picking up Jake's order. So they match those two things together and say, go ahead and approve this transaction. And then you'll get the approval message. And then Arun yeah. can go ahead and pick up and move on and deliver this to Jake. So that's what this is doing. And again, it's very, it, it could be dialed down to the penny if you want to. And so then there's, there's another side to that. If, if I'm the 1099 contractor in this situation, you talk about push to card in the book. How, how do, how do I get paid? And the reason I'm asking this is I remember walking into to, to the Lyft offices in 2016 when I interviewed and I met with the, pay, the, the PM at the time who was working on driver payments. And I said, well, doesn't Stripe handle that? They said, no, no, we have to build our own. What does that look like? What did that look like a few years ago? And what does that look like today um, sure. for a company? Yeah. So again, just to kind of close the loop on this one, the, the example that we just walked through is how, how does the merchant get paid for this, right? So now if we're talking about how does the driver get paid traditionally, and again, like most of us, we get paid via direct deposit, right? So that yep. uses that uses the ACH protocol and it's a bank to bank uh, transaction. It's not real time. And what will happen is that this, it's all file based. And so what you do is you, the, the employer or the gig platform that wants to pay out this driver will submit a file to the Fed. The Fed basically figures it out and moves mm -hmm. it to the the driver's bank accounts if it's Chase. But usually it takes a day or two for that money to arrive. So it's not exactly real time. So for the end, it's fine if you're used to getting paid on a weekly cadence or whatever. But if you need your money faster, one of the best ways that I think people can get paid now, I'm actually a really huge fan of this one, is the push to card technology that you just talked about, Arun. This is primarily Visa Direct and MasterCard Send. And what happens in this instance is instead of getting paid to a bank account, so using your account and routing number, you actually put in your debit card number. And what's going to happen here is that if I, for like a Lyft driver, for example, when they are done with their drives for a day, they can actually go into the app and say, oh, okay, I did 20 rides. I'm owed a few hundred dollars. I want to get this money right now. So they can go ahead and push the button and then that money gets sent instantly to their debit card. So they could immediately after that log into their Chase account or the Wells Fargo or whatever, and they'll see the money there. It's like ready to go. And this is an incredibly powerful technology that I think really hit its stride, especially with Uber and Lyft initially, but now it's being used with Venmo, Cash App, mm -hmm. all these consumer apps to just move money really fast. And one of the things that we did at Branch initially was we knew that people needed money like instantly. And the use case really was we had these uh, people that didn't have any money in their bank account because again, they're getting paid on the 15th and the 30th. They'd be at a gas station and they'd need money to get to. And if we would have pushed this money through ACH, that money wouldn't show up in time. But since we were using this push to car technology, that money showed up instantly and you could just swipe that card at the pump and the money is there and usable. And so I think 
this particular technology is changing the way that we think about how people get paid. The other angle to this also is to think about digital wallets. And so another another thing that we do over at Branch is we offer a digital wallet for all of the people on, on the platform. And we have ways to post money to it instantly for free. Yeah, that's... That's pretty amazing. I love that that push to car technology does seem like I, I like the reframing of the problem from like, hey, it's do I need to get paid more to I just need my money when I need it, which I think is that reframing really does push a lot of this. And and I think one of the interesting things, too, is and by the way, I believe Lyft does use Stripe Connect uh, Rune, so I'm going to I'll call it out right here. Um, I'm to, sure they to moved actually... to it since, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think it was actually the genesis of it. I mean, I can't necessarily comment on that, but, but yeah. Now that we're talking about branch, this like neobank style of payment and, and the push to cart technology, Arun and I, a lot of times talk about what makes a tech company. And in the book, you call out something specifically, which is that neobanks aren't actually banks, but they're tech companies that, you know, partner with banks. Can you dive into a little bit of that and, and really kind of pull us through what, what do you mean by that? And, and how is that going to change the landscape moving forward? Yeah, I think the, the term bank is very, very specific. And there's a lot of compliance. There's a lot of like paperwork, et cetera, to say that you are a bank. And so the only one that you're starting to see this more and more, but the, the one of note that is a true bank, that's an, what, what was in the classification of what's, what we refer to as neobank is actually Varo. And so they received their official like banking license, I would say what, two years back now. But, you know, when you think about neobanks, you think about Current and Chime, branches kind of in, in that same vein, they're not really banks. They are tech companies. And what we do is we actually leverage partner banks to, to power the, the financial experience. And so, like, you have regional banks like Sutton, Bank Corp, Evolve, Lincoln Savings and Trust. There's, there's, a, there's a whole handful of these, but... These are all banks. They are not your typical big brand names. They're not Chase. They're not Wells, et cetera. But what they do is they offer all the like banking license, compliance, infrastructure, et cetera. And they will essentially let tech companies work with them to offer these products into the market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, ma that makes a lot of sense. I, I think when I, when I take a step back and I think about the democratization of like financial tools and like all of these different layers that are getting built, like uh, across the board, I I'm definitely, I mean, FinTech is such a I, I, quote unquote hot space right now, but like generally I think that that's ripe for innovation. And so that that's really cool to see some of those partnerships happening and like that abstraction layers kind of getting built on top. Um, and I think really it's, it's those abstraction layers that obviously you are at the forefront of that I think is really changing things moving forward. So I, I think with that, we can, I, I want to talk a lot, a lot about branch here. Cause I think that branch is exactly what, you know, what we're talking about. We're kind of, you know, going around it a bit and mentioned it throughout our entire discussion so far, but can you tell us just about the new adventure and, and real quick before we dive in, Arun and I always love to talk about this, but we're all from the cold, which is awesome. I'm from Wisconsin. I believe you're from Minnesota, Arun is from Buffalo. And so definitely cool to, to see Branch kind of spinning up its roots there. Yeah, no, we, um, we love the cold, well, I, I guess. So, yeah. uh, or the sand or, or the, the sand. sand. Yeah. Um, I, I, I realized that in the 10 years that I was in the Bay area, I, I became kind of a wuss. 
when it came oh. to the snow. When I first moved back, I was like, oh my God, what is going on here? But I think I'm like used to it now. I mean, right now we're in summer. It's wonderful. But yeah, we, you know, again, being close to, you know, again, it, it started off as a workforce management company. And so we headquartered it out of Minneapolis to be closer to Target and Best Buy and all these big retailers, right? And that I was very fortunate because it was like a really cool tech company in Minneapolis because you don't have two tech startups and you this, Jake. So I think I was, yes, I got really lucky. I, I got really lucky. I, yeah, uh, that's and great. So yeah, I mean, again, what what is branch? So you can think of us as a fintech or a neobank for working Americans. So we work uh, very closely with hourly workers. We work very closely now with 1099 workers. And the objective really is how do we help these people get ahead financially? And we do this by offering them completely fee-free banking services. We are able to get them paid incredibly fast as well. And so the idea is how do we bring these employers and gig platforms and workers all kind of together on one. Interesting. And you talk about sort of like you kind of starting in, in Minnesota because it was close to like early customers. What's it like building a company in what is not a tech hub in 2021, possibly, I mean, maybe looking forward to 2022, uh, especially when now like the geography has been so been so disintermediated from what a company is in some ways. What do you think that's, that's like? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've kind of changed my tune on a lot of things. So we, even though the company is headquartered in Minneapolis, we don't actually have an office. So it is, it is actually a remote first company. Now we had to make this decision. It was a hard decision to make, but I mean, we made it right around the time that everything started shutting down and our workforce is kind of all over the place. We actually have a lot of people out, out in the Bay Area as well working with Branch. We've got people in New York that we're working with. They're kind of all over. We haven't ventured into international yet, but- A whole other can of worms. That's a whole another can of worms. But, <laughs> but as of right now, we are, we are a remote first US-based company. Let's just put it that way. And I would say that I still feel like a lot of the innovation and really great talent is in the Bay Area. Still believe that. I don't think it's going to change. I mean, there's all this news about the mass exodus of people leaving, but there is something just inherently magical, I think, of what what is the Bay Area. And it's just the, the density of people thinking about tech. And I don't think it can be replicated anywhere, but considering all the things that we had in the pandemic, people are just getting used to working remote. And so we have, again, communication, the way in which we communicate, like Slack is just like nonstop. That's why I had to like <laughs> shut off my <laughs> notifications because it was just blowing up. But right now, actually, we're finding that it's actually easier to recruit people, but also at the same time, salary expectations are totally like out of whack right now. Whereas before it was like, oh, okay, if you're, if you're hiring an engineer from Minneapolis, you could expect to pay quite a bit less than if you're hiring them from the Bay Area. But now with everything being so fluid, it's kind of crazy across the board. And so for us, we, we're always looking for the best people that we can attract and doesn't really matter where they live, if they live in the Bay Area or if they live in Florida or whatever, like we just want to be working with the best. 
Yeah, it's interesting because now by the time this podcast airs, I will be at my own company and thinking Not about- at your own company. Well, I guess I will- Starting your own company. <laughs> starting. I guess I'll be there. I mean, I'll be incorporated. I'll be employed by it, I guess. Yeah. And so I've been thinking our first office definitely in Pittsburgh. My hometown's in Buffalo. So I've been having a lot of thoughts about what it would look like to maybe spin up there. But, you know, you still do need some presence in the Bay Area, probably. But it is interesting to think about. It's interesting to think about what, like, what is an office anymore? Like, you think about, like, yep. it's something I've had to think about a lot at night now is, well, okay, you say you want these offices. What does an office mean? What is that going to mean in 2023, 2024 and moving forward? And I, I think it's, I think more and more companies are going to go remote first uh, for a number of reasons. But I think that chief among them is, is access to talent. And I don't think you're going to have a choice is actually my view. Certain companies will be able to lay down like rules. If you work for Google and your life's pretty good, like maybe you, you consider going back to office because they, they issue a rule. But I actually wonder even if hybrid can really work. I think that you're going to see remote first and you'll see sort of like remote with, with option of office sort of popping up more and more. Uh, but that's just my sort of projection. But that, that kind of like, that kind of takes us into office stuff. Let's, let's go into actual like branches products and move in there. So, so paying workers, this seems like it's this whole other thing. Yeah. 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 So I, I think just, okay. So, so a classic W2 worker, let's just look at it. what happens with an hourly worker. You're probably clocking in and clocking out somewhere might be a machine that you punch in or punch out to may, might be an app, something you're doing something that basically tells you your hours. And then those hours are sent. I don't, I don't know the frequency, whatever, but they're sent to a payroll system and that payroll system then figures out how much is owed by, you know, subtracting out taxes, your other deductions, your insurance, whatever. And then they drop the money into your bank account by using ACH. Sometimes they use a paper check, but you know, we're seeing a lot more people get uh, money put in via direct deposit and that's just typical. But you start looking at things where people are getting tips on a daily basis or mm -hmm. they're getting expense reimbursements or they're getting money in other, for other things that are more like daily in nature. And it sucks having to tell them oh, you're going to get your tips with your paycheck, which will be in two weeks. Because historically, tips were done all in cash. But now, tips are not in cash anymore. So it, one, one really good use case of this is just think about your Domino's pizza driver, right? Before it used to be the case, they would come and deliver your pizza and you would give cash for the pizza and you'd say, hey, keep the tip. And so there'd be actually a wad of cash that they're accumulating at the end of the night, which by the way, in certain cities could be really dangerous because somebody could just pull you over and mug you for the, for the cash. Right. Um, for sure. but nowadays nobody's actually paying for anything in cash. And so when you order a pizza for Domino's, you might get the Domino's app, put your credit card in there and you're going to pay for the pizza. And then it's going to prompt you and say, how much tip do you want to add? You put the tip right there. Or you call in the store, you pay with the card and the driver brings you a, a receipt. And then in the receipt, you write in the, the tip amount. And the challenge that a lot of these, you know, pizza delivery places have is that they need to tabulate out how much money to pay out the driver every night. But when they'd go to the cash register to be able to pull the cash there, a lot of times there's no cash there either, because when people are coming in to pay, they're paying with a the card as well. 
And so again, the drivers are being told, oh, this great, awesome cash benefit that you had every night, you're not going to get it because you're going to get it during your paycheck, which is in two weeks, right? And so we found that to be a really interesting challenge. And so what we've been able to do is we can actually pay out these drivers instantly after they're done with each delivery, or we can pay them at the end of the night instantly because it's all digital because they'll have a branch wallet account with them. And we can just go ahead and send that money to them digitally. And if they want to get cash, they can always run to an ATM and get it from there. We've got 45,000 free ATMs that they can go to. But again, they've got a debit card that they can use for anything and that money is available to them instantly. And so the, the way in which we're doing that is because we basically created our own rails for which to post this money to. You alternatively could use a Visa Direct or MasterCard Send as well to kind of do the lift use case. But if you want to do high frequency, like you want to be able to pay somebody after every pizza drop, the push to card fees are quite expensive. So um, that's kind of what we're trying to resolve. And I'm very curious here, and we talked about this a couple of times, which is like the frequency of payments and how that can be tough, especially if like you run into kind of like a, a cash emergency kind of in between your pay periods. And I understand that one of the things that that happens is this concept of a payday loan, which is for people listening, a payday loan is essentially a, a essentially a predatory loan uh, that is basically that takes advantage of people who are in a cash crunch and they essentially are lent money with the idea that they'll be paid within a certain number of days and they pay very high interest rates for this. Is part of the motivation of branch to sort of eliminate what is essentially what I think is a financial product that exists only because of an extreme inefficiency and because of extreme desperation? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, so well, we, we call this product earned wage and that's mm -hmm. one of the major things that we're trying to solve because remember we, or we were talking earlier, you know, they're getting paid on the 15th and the 30th. They need money in between. What do they do? They're going to these payday lenders and saying, hey, I just need some cash to like buy gas or whatever. And it's inefficient because you have to go in somewhere and they like write you a check or they'll like give you cash, whatever. Um, and they charge you a, an insane amount of money. So it's kind of like, well, these people don't make very much money to begin with. And then they're getting charged all these insane fees. Um, and so we wanted to, to change that. And essentially what we're doing is we get, uh, and by the way, the way that we get these people on platform is we actually work with the employers uh, of these employees. And also again, on the 1099 side, they're not employers, they're gig platforms, right? So we work mm -hmm. with the gig platforms to get this in, but with the traditional W2 employee who's getting paid every two weeks, what we get from the employer is their hours. So we know their hours, we know their hourly rate. So we can actually kind of come up with an estimate of like how much they're earning on a daily basis. And so what happens is that on, at the end of the night, when we get your hours, let's say you worked eight hours and let's just say it's $10 for the sake of making things easy. We know that you've earned $80 uh, for that day. What we can do is we can give you a portion of that upfront. We usually don't give the whole amount because you still have to factor in like taxes and all that stuff. So whatever that calculation is, uh, let's just say, we do half, right? So I say, hey, Arun, you have $40 that you've earned today. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take that today? And so when you say yes, it goes ahead and gets dropped into your branch wallet instantly. And so you can go ahead and use it. And so you use it if you need it. And if you don't need it, it'll come uh, in your paycheck at the end, end of two weeks. Super interesting. And then it's interesting when you talk about this, because this, like the, the payroll side of things, you see where like, innovation's really taking place. So far, it's been mostly on the, the consumer sort of like chip side. 
when I started learning about payroll a long time ago, that always struck me as being the more inefficient side in, in that you had like, you would have to commit money to payroll. You would, you'd have a company like an ADP or a Paychex that would just keep your money basically for however long they'd make money off interest. They call that the float. And I've also heard it referred to as the drag, I think as well. Um, I, I don't know how many, how many, what do you call how many like terms they can have for this that sound like a drug that they, that, that actually exists. But those are the two that I know of. And do you think it's just technology that has made some of these companies vulnerable? Or do you think low interest rates also has something to do with it? Like that, that business is not as profitable as it used to be because you cannot make as much money off your cash flow. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts or from off base completely. I, I can't, I can't really talk too much about the, the interest component to it, mm -hmm. but I will say one thing that a lot of these things were built at a time, like payroll has been, has not really changed very much. And it was built like decades ago where you actually had what's referred to as a punch card that you would clock in and clock out of, and then you'd have to collect it at the end of the night. Somebody would have to tabulate it mm -hmm. and then put it in. Somebody would need to approve it. And ultimately the two week pay cycle comes from that because there's all this like manual stuff that you had to do to get to the payroll date. But like, and then on top of that, ACH was, I mean, by the way, it's I'm not like the biggest fan of ACH because it's not real time, but Back in the day, it was even longer. So ACH would typically take three days. Now it's uh, gotten really good because it's gotten shorter, shorter to being like a one day, a one business day type of thing. And then now they've introduced the same day ACH, which even when it's, if you, if you initiate a transfer at like before 11 o'clock, the earliest day you'd get it is like 6 PM still, but it's still better than what's out there before. So you have this kind of confluence of like money movement mechanisms that were slow and arcane. And then you've got on the other side, technology that required all this manual approval and process. And because of that, that's why payroll is built the way that it is, right? But now if you start looking at some of the more modern guys that are coming up, like Rippling and Check is another one that's really interesting. Uh, and there's another company, it's called Puzzle. Um, actually they just changed their name recently, but uh, that are trying to change the way that you think about, uh, payroll. And I think that's going to help shape like being able to get people paid daily because again, Uber and Lyft have kind of set the stage of saying like people should just get paid. And I think employers are all trying to figure out like, how do I do that? But like the technology that they've, you know, been on forever, like is architected on this old style of doing things. And so I, I think there actually is a lot of innovation that's going to happen in the space. Like I think payroll space is something to watch. I mean, I'm watching it very, very closely as well, but ultimately earned wage access, the product that we offer is essentially a way to get people paid on a daily basis, but it, it works in the confines of how payroll is built today. Super interesting. And one thing I love every time I talk to like Jake or, or you or, or anything is I love the payments industry because it starts with a fundamental, like questioning of like, of assumptions, like, Hey, this was built like a long time ago. This was built with like a two week pay cycle in mind for these reasons. Let's go back, break down those reasons again and see if they make sense in 2021 anymore. And it's super fascinating. We have a tradition here on Techonomics now that we'll move you into, which is called the, the hot take. 
I think I think Jake's done them now. I like calling it Jake's Hot Takes as like a segment name, even <laughs> though we both do them. But Jake, do you want to give Ahmed his, his hot take? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. Today's hot take is very related, I think, maybe somewhat orthogonally, but but somewhat parallelly as well to branch and and really this earned wages and, and having them be accessible to to workers. And so what I want to talk about today is your reactions to the recent Affirm announcement with Amazon and how buy now, pay later, and that type of new essentially credit line is really playing into the industry and and how you see that relating to to branch. So um, what are your thoughts on on that announcement? So again, it's it's super exciting. So I think for a lot of us, I mean, I don't know again on your your listener base, but I, I know that you, Jake, Arun, myself, like we have credit cards, and so being able to get access to credit to pay for things over time, like it's like we have a lot of opportunities. We have a lot of ways of getting at it. And the way that credit cards were built is they're built on this credit score that again, is it relevant now or not? That's debatable, but we have access to it. In the demographic that branch services and a lot of the, like if you look at Cash App or even Chime or Current, et cetera, a lot of these people don't score very well on the traditional credit scores. And for that reason, they're actually not able to get credit cards and they're not able to get credit. Or even if they were to get it, it's like with some like atrocious fee. Yeah. Um, the other angle to this one too is even with credit cards, the APR nonsense, it's really, really hard to understand. And so like, if I don't make my payment at this point, I'm going to get charged this. And like, I mean, the math in itself is like mind boggling. And so what the buy now pay later guys have done is that they have made it really easy for just about anyone to get underwritten for essentially a loan. And you do it without using traditional credit markers. So what they'll do is they'll like figure out how much cash flow you have. They'll look at your income sources. They'll look at a whole bunch of other signals to figure out like, hey, okay, cool. You want to buy this $200 thing from Amazon, but you don't want to pay for it right now with your debit card. I'm going to go ahead and underwrite you for the $200. And what we'll do is we'll split this up into four equal payments of $50 each. And in, in some cases, they'll add a service fee on top of it. So instead of $50 a month, you're getting charged $52 a month, but the buy now pay later providers have made it really clean and simple. Like again, Max Levchin's thing was all about transparency. And so like, even if there is a service charge, you're going to see it like built in to the monthly payment and it's going to be called out. It's going to say, well, $50 actually goes to paying this thing off. $2 is actually a fee and that's consistent. We're not going to charge you anything else on top of that. It's very clean and easy to understand. And people love this. Because it's finally like, okay, this is fair credit and you're not doing some janky like behind the scenes calculation that nobody really understands how to, how to do. And, and so that's why I really like the buy now pay later providers. So you've got, you've got a firm, you've got Klarna, Sezzle, Afterpay, which was huge, right? For Square. So kind of going into that, you've got the whole cash app ecosystem that probably can really use something like an afterpay to pay. And so I feel like that marriage is really awesome. But in the world of Amazon, again, Amazon wants to sell more stuff. And sometimes people just can't afford it. And so that's why they walk away. And so being able to leverage a firm to do the checkout enables people to 
buy more things at Amazon and it's in a fair and easy way. So I, I, I think it's, I think it's huge. I think it's going to be awesome. I will say one thing, like I've got five people in my family. I've got uh, myself, my wife and three kids. Travel is really expensive and buying oh, totally. airfare, like again, is, is incredibly expensive for me. So, I mean, for the longest time, I've actually been using PayPal's split pay mm. for like the longest time. I mean, I, I remember using this almost like four or five years ago before like buy now, pay later was a thing, but ultimately that's what it is, is that, yeah. and, and I think even with PayPal, because I've got a good record with them, they didn't even charge me a fee for it. So, yeah. Um, awesome. Well, Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, it was great to hear. And, and really we've just scratched the surface on payments. I'm sure I actually, you and I should just record a conversation of a rune asking us peppered questions on, on payments. I, I'd love to see that someday yeah. uh, as well. So we, we'd love to have you back. Um, and so, yeah, we just wanted to say thank you for being on. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it guys. Cool. Cool. All right, Arun. So that, that concludes season one for us. How do you feel? I feel good. We started this in late 2020 and I, I wouldn't say we had formal goals written down or anything like that, but in terms of our own expectations, I think this is definitely, definitely exceeded what I thought this was going to be at the end of almost a year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I know I, I speak for both of us when I say thank you so much to all of the guests that we've had on and, and all the listeners um, that we've had to listen to the podcast and, and show support. We really couldn't have done it without you. And Arun, I, I know we have one more announcement on top of that. So do you want to kick that off? And one more thing. Jake and I are super excited. We're announcing the formation of, of an angel syndicate called Extremis Ventures. And if you're a founder out there and you're working on a really hard problem, reach out to us at podcast.techonomics.news. And if you're interested in joining the syndicate, there's a link to the Angelist Syndicate in the show notes. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you in 2022. Hey, everyone. Arun and I are extremely grateful to have you as a Techonomics listener. As a reminder, the views expressed in the content of this podcast or anything linked in the newsletter, website, posts, or posted in social media or other platforms are that of our own and are not the views of any person, company, entity, or even any related affiliates. The content is not directed to any investors or even potential investors. It does not constitute an offer to sell or is a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. It may not be used or relied upon in evaluating the merits of any investment. Thank you.